0: Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Ephesians, chapter 3. We're going to start this morning in verse 14. If you're using these black Bibles that uh, are scattered underneath the seats around you throughout the sanctuary, you'll find Ephesians, chapter 3, on page 918. So as, you, as you're turning there, let me ask you this um, What are the kind of things that you pray for? What kinds of requests? dominate the various things you bring before God uh, on, on behalf of yourself or on behalf of, of others in this church? Uh, what do you spend the most time talking with God about? Ever ask yourself that question? It's really a great way to diagnose your heart. It's really a great way to determine what your priorities really are, uh, to pinpoint the things that really matter most to you. And I think for some of us, that might actually be a painful exercise but I think it's a very necessary one. It could be a very helpful one. The Puritan John Owen once said that, what a man is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. That's a sobering thought. And if true, and I think it is, we learn a lot about the man Paul by examining his prayers. We learn a lot about prayer and what our priorities in prayer should be. We learn a lot about the Christian life in general, and so I'm praying that we would have ears to hear what God would have us learn as we examine this prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. Now, Paul in the first three chapters of this book has been unfolding to the Ephesian church incredible realities about their identity in Christ and God's amazing purposes for His people in His plan of redemption. Because of our sinful rebellion against God, we found ourselves estranged from God, hostile towards God, in slavery to our own sin and to the devil, not only hating God, but hating our fellow man. And even though we were children of wrath, deserving nothing from God except eternal judgment in hell. Nevertheless, God had mercy on us. In love, He chose to adopt us into His family. He sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to pay the price for us, shedding His blood and dying for sinners as a substitute. And in the wake of that, God has raised us to newness of life. He's taken our old, sinful, stubborn hearts And he's transformed them into hearts that love God, and he's caused us to place our hope in him and in the substitutionary death of Jesus. And all who hope in him find that Jesus' payment for sins counts for them. The debt has been paid, forgiveness and pardon have come. And through the redeeming work of Christ, the barrier between God and man is shattered. And what's more, God reconciles man with fellow man as he tears down the dividing wall of hostility between the peoples, and he unites them together in Christ, bringing all of his redeemed children into the same spiritual household as brothers and sisters together. That household is called the church. And so where man used to be at war against God and against his neighbor, Now man has peace with God and loving unity with his neighbor. That's the hope of the gospel. And and Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 verse 10 that God is doing this so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's incredibly wise plan to glorify Himself to the rulers and authorities, to the to the invisible, unseen angelic and demonic powers that are watching the drama of redemption unfold. The apex of that plan is manifested through God's formation of the church as you become not only a showcase of God's mercy and grace as he saved you individually, but His wisdom is glorified, especially when you and I collectively, as God's people, live together as a holy community in this local congregation. As we become living examples to the rulers and authorities, living examples of the power of God at work in us, no longer living in sinful hatred and disunity and in a selfish way towards one another, but instead living as a people who have changed hearts and changed lives, changed to such a degree that our lifestyle in this congregation communicates to the universe that something supernatural has happened to us through the power and wisdom of God. And in chapters 4 through 6, Paul's going to flesh out what this supernatural lifestyle looks like in the local congregation. But before he gets to that, he first feels the need to pray, and well, he should feel that need, because Paul knows that we aren't going to be able to live the Christian life in the strength of our own resources. We've been redeemed from the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin is still in our hearts. It, It still hasn't been fully and completely rooted out yet. We aren't perfect, and so, so we have our own sinful tendencies that are going to make living the Christian life together challenging, and in addition to that, Paul knows we have a common enemy that will stop at nothing to undermine our walk with God. You see, I think in particular this wisdom of God on display through the church is meant to be a sign to Satan and his demons of their defeats. They have opposed the glorification and exaltation of God from the very beginning, and they sought primarily to oppose that glory by leading men astray into sin, away from God, putting them under condemnation, and little did Satan know that part of God's plan all along to glorify himself would be to glorify himself through redeeming and transforming a people who went astray. Satan got played because he's a fool, and God is wise. And that makes the devil really mad, which is why Paul in chapter 6 is going to warn you that Satan is coming after you, Satan is coming after this church, and so Paul is going to instruct us in the art of spiritual warfare. But before he does that, and before he reveals the details of this incredible Christian life that God has called us to live up to, Paul first very wisely drops to his knees and prays. So now let's read and think carefully about this prayer and discover what God wants to teach us about prayer, about our priorities, and about the Christian life. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 14 and read on down through verse 21. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, "'For this reason I bow my knees before the Father,' Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and I ask that you would bless the hearing and the preaching of your word, so that we might discern and understand what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's Community Baptist Church this morning through this word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, last week, we took a close look at verse uh, 14 And we ended our time last week considering how verse 15 starts this prayer with a reminder of God's sovereign power. Paul says, he bows his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And we discussed last week how naming in the Bible signifies supreme authority. And Paul is essentially saying here that God rules over all, including the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that Paul just mentioned in verse 10 which would include the demonic powers that are seeking to destroy the Ephesian church and and every church for that matter. And and I think what Paul says there is important because uh, as far as focusing on God's sovereign power, because Paul has very high expectations for how the church is going to live. Paul is wanting to see things happen in the Ephesian church, and I should add that I want to see things happen for Harbin's church, the same things, things that are way beyond human resources. And so Paul starts out in verses 14 and 15 with this preamble as if to encourage his readers and remind them that though their calling is big, God is bigger. And, and though there are evil powers that will oppose the church, God is bigger than those powers. And so with God's sovereignty in mind, look at how Paul prays in verse 16. He he prays according to the riches of his glory, or according to his glorious riches. And there he's highlighting the incredible resources of the one whom Paul prays to. And it is noteworthy that Paul doesn't pray that God would respond out of his riches, but that he would respond according to his riches. And there's a difference. Let's say, for example, that you knew Bill Gates. And he said that he was going to give you a gift out of his riches, which would probably excite any of us if we heard that. And he gives you a gift, and you unwrap it, and you're very eager to see what it is, and you unwrap it, and it's a candle from Bath and Body Works. you feel pretty gypped. I, I, this is from Bill Gates? What, what is this that I got? But he said he was gonna, he, he did what he said he was gonna do he gave you something out of his riches. It wasn't much, but it was something. But, but imagine instead now that Bill Gates said that he would give you a gift according to his riches, something that was in keeping with, in accordance with the magnitude of his wealth. That would be something altogether different. And now you'd have real cause to be excited. Now, take a step back. And consider what Paul is praying and, and expecting here. He is praying that God would respond and give to the Ephesian church, not out of God's riches, but according to his riches. And how rich is God? How, how much resources does God have? He is infinitely uh, richer than Bill Gates. And so Paul prays here to a God that he knows is not stingy. Uh, to a God who's not tight-fisted who doesn't reluctantly give when we pray, but lavishly gives. That's the God whom Paul prays to, and that's the God that you pray to. So with God's sovereignty in mind, and with God's lavish generosity in mind, Paul now lifts up three amazing petitions to God, all and they're, they're leading to one glorious end. And, and so what, is, what does Paul pray here? Well, the first thing we see is that Paul prays for power, Paul prays for power. Friends, how would you, how would you uh, like it that if you prayed and you would see your prayers answered with a manifestation of power? Don't you want more power in your life? Don't you want more power in prayer? Sounds really good. But what does, what does that even mean? What does that even look like? When we think about power, we tend to think of outward manifestations of strength, kind of like the power team. Does anybody here remember the power team? Some of you older folks here, you, you know, I don't even know if they're around anymore. Uh, some of you know who they are. They were a ministry, and they would go around to churches and schools, and they were all huge muscle-bound dudes, okay? because they had a lot of power. And they were performing feats of strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and then they'd rip up phone books, and they, they'd like, you know, smash concrete blocks over their head is do crazy things like that. That's power, right? It's not what Paul means by power. This is not a power that comes through pumping iron and taking your vitamins. The power team ripped up phone books in their own power. But look at verse 16. Paul is asking that they would be strengthened with power through God's spirit. That this is a power coming not through your efforts. It's a power that is mediated through the Holy Spirit. This power is not inherently yours, it is God's. And that's really important because Christianity is not just about the power of God rescuing you, saving you, delivering you out of darkness, and bringing you into his family. It's not as if God does all of that for you and then he says, okay, great, I've done my part, I brought you into the kingdom. Now, you take the baton, you you do the rest, and I'll see you in heaven later on. Good luck with that. That's not what God does. Remember what Paul told the Galatian church. He said, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Friends, we, we don't just need God's strength and power for our initial salvation, for our justification, We also need God's strength and power for our sanctification, for continuing to live for God, growing in holiness and growing in love. In fact, folks, there is never a moment where we don't need God's power to live as we ought. Did you know that? And this can really strike a blow to our pride because I think we believe we are more capable of running our own lives in our own strength and in our own resources more often than we think. How often? As often as we sin. Every time you and I sin, every time you fail to walk as you ought, guess what happened? You failed to walk as you ought because you did not walk in the power of God. You walked in the strength of your own resources, and walking that way always leads you right back to the same place in defeat and on your back spiritually. Jesus didn't say, apart from me, you can do nothing for nothing. (laughs) He was dead serious about that. We need His power mediated through God's Holy Spirit. We need it desperately. And and I don't don't know if we feel the level of desperation as much as we should. So let me try to help you with that. In the next chapter, in chapter 4... And, and you can look over there with me if you want. Paul, Paul s- starts out by saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, just stop right there. <laughs> There's a lot more coming in Ephesians, but just, let's just stick with that for now. Who can do that on their own? Who lives like that? Not Deemer Webb, operating out of his own resources, not not me, that's for sure. You know, I like that old hymn, I need thee every hour, but it is way too optimistic for me. I'm going to blow these commands in Ephesians 4 in five minutes, in five seconds. I'm going to disqualify myself before I've even begun. I need divine power to do this. Every hour, every minute, every second. Harbin's church needs divine power through God's spirit to do this. And, and if we can't believe that, then just forget about the rest of the book of Ephesians. We might as well stop the sermon series here and not go any further until we get this. This is precisely why Paul doesn't go immediately from chapter three to chapter four without serious prayer, without a prayer for power. And, and what does that power look like? Again, it's not outward manifestations of power. It's, it's not that Harbin's church would become the new power team with Peter ripping phone books and Carrie smashing concrete blocks over his head. That's, that's, not, that's not where we're going with this. Instead, Paul prays in verse 16 that the Spirit's power would work in you in such a way that you'll be strengthened with power in your inner being. Not your outer being, but your inner being. That's my next point. Paul prays for the inner being. Or the inner man, as some translations say. Now, what's that? What's, what's the inner man? Well, the Bible teaches that your, your, your makeup as a human being is, first of all, external. That's your physical body. And then secondly, internal. That's the invisible part of you that you can't see. Uh, that's the spiritual part of you. Elsewhere, this part of you is called the heart. The heart. Not the organ that pumps blood, but the part of you inside that is the seat of your deepest beliefs and thoughts and desires. Paul Tripp describes the heart as the essential you, the real you, the motivational you. The heart is the steering wheel, the control center of the human being. From your heart, from your inner man, comes your speech and your choices and your very lifestyle. And I find it so fascinating that this is the focus of Paul's prayers. And not just here, but in general. Paul is always praying about spiritual matters way more than physical matters. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Our culture today is the opposite. We are very fixated on material matters. And we're very focused on the outer man, aren't we? We're really focused uh, on our appearance, on our health, on physical comforts. Uh, We do everything that we can to care for the outer man. We spend lots of time on it, lots of money on it. We put makeup on it. We shove pills into it. We do everything we can to care for and preserve the outer man. And we even judge people on the basis of the appearance of the outer man. And this concern for the outer man, for many, has turned into an obsession that has even affected Christians, and, and I know that because I know what dominates the majority of my prayers, and I know what dominates the majority of prayers for many Christians. What we pray about reflects our priorities. Think about it. When you pray for yourself, <clears throat> and when you pray for members of this church, when you take that membership directory and you pray through it. And by the way, I, I hope that you are doing that. At the last members meeting, we had, or a couple members meetings ago, we gave out that membership directory. We'll give out another one later, later this year. But I'm counting on you to be praying through that, praying for the members of this church. And when you do, what, what's the main focus of your prayers for the people of Harbin's Church? I think most of our prayers probably are in the realm uh, of the material. <clears throat> in the realm of uh, of physical needs, strength for our bodies, strength financially, uh, physical healing. Uh, Many of us have been praying for our new pastor, Jared, and his family, that they would get a home to stay in as they transition to this church, and praise God that God answered that prayer this weekend. There's nothing wrong with those kinds of prayers. It's a good thing to pray for material matters. We, We should do that. I love it when we as a church share prayer requests for healing and physical strength as a significant number in our church, young and old, are dealing with health challenges. We need to be praying for that. And the New Testament is not totally absent of prayers like that. Uh, They're not common, but they're there. One example is in 3 John, where the apostle says that, I pray that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. But notice there that even even there, that prayer isn't divorced from spiritual realities. He says, as it goes well with your soul. The truth is simply that the prayers of the New Testament often look very different from our prayers, don't they? The prayers of the New Testament are mainly about spiritual matters with a little bit of physical matters sprinkled in. Our prayers are often the opposite. Lots and lots of prayers regarding the physical outer man Physical needs, the outward condition, but, but how often do we pray for one another's inner man, Spir- the inward spiritual condition? God says in 1 Samuel that we focus on the outer man, but God looks at the heart. That, that's what God is most concerned about. And if He's most concerned about that, about the, the heart and the desires of the heart, the holiness of our hearts, the love that is in our hearts for him and for others, shouldn't that be our primary concern as well? And is that reflected in our prayers for ourselves and for one another in this church? You know, Scripture tells us that if we ask anything according to God's will, that God will answer our request, that he'll give that thing to us. Do you know that's a guarantee? That's an amazing and wonderful promise. Now, if that's true let me ask you this. Why do we spend so much time praying for things that may or may not be God's will, like healing or other material things, things that God may or may not give us? We just don't, we just don't know. And again, I'm not saying don't pray for those things, but I'm saying why spend so much time praying for those things that we... we don't know if it's God's will or not, may or may not be, and why don't we spend more time praying for the things that we do know to be God's will? Like strength for the inner man. Like increased love and holiness in our lives and in our church. Increased contentment in the midst of all kinds of circumstances. Things that we do know God will answer because they're in accordance with His will. Now, again, I'm not saying stop praying for material matters. And I'm not even saying pray for material matters less. I'm encouraging you to instead to, to pray for spiritual matters more. Ramp those up. Pray for them more, much more. Because, of course, no matter how much we focus on and pray for the outer man, y'all, there is nothing that we're going to be able to do to ultimately reverse the great truth that Paul reveals to us elsewhere that our outer self is wasting away. Some of y'all know that. You're experiencing that. You know, I I don't need, I don't need any great apologetical arguments to prove to me the truthfulness and accuracy of the Bible. All I need to do is look in the mirror in the morning. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible's true. This outer self ain't what it used to be. Not that it was ever all that to begin with, (laughs) but it's in more disrepair than ever. Less hair than I used to have whiter hair than I used to have. I got this thing going on with my arm now. I was telling Dana about this the other day when I put on my jacket, when I just reach backwards like that, there's pain that shoots What is going on with that? I can't even put on my clothes without hurting. Y'all in your 20s, it's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this arm, that's the latest in a long line of things, wasting away, so it's all going downhill. You can pray for my outer man all you want, and I I welcome that, but unless Jesus comes back before the grave, you're not stopping the outer man from deterioration. I can try to slow it down with diet and exercise, and I probably should, but we all know what the end of the story will be for this old body. It's wasting away, and that could be really depressing if that were the whole story. It could be depressing if my identity was rooted exclusively in the outer man. But Paul says, do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You <clears throat> see, no matter what's going on with the outer man, the inner man can grow stronger. And God has given us various means of grace to strengthen our inner man. The the Holy Spirit strengthens us through the reading and and meditation on God's Word. He strengthens us through God-centered fellowship in the church. He he also strengthens us through prayer. And so Paul prays for these Ephesian believers, and it's exactly what should dominate our prayers for ourselves and for one another. And to what end? What's the purpose of the Holy Spirit strengthening your inner being? That leads to Paul's next petition. And by the way, these petitions build on one another. I'm I'm not going to be able to get to all the petitions this week. We'll get to them more on uh, next week. I I said there's three petitions, but that's just what we're covering today. There's more petitions that are kind of building on one another. John Stott describes each petition as, as uh, I think, a staircase, and and each one builds on the other, and it's kind of getting higher and higher, and it's, it's, it's getting towards a climactic end, which we won't get to until next week, God willing. And so, Paul prays that He might grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, verse 17. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that's my next and third observation, where Paul prays for hearts that would be Christ's dwelling place, for hearts that would be Christ's dwelling place. So the purpose of the Spirit strengthening your inner being is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, two questions come to mind. Number one, how does Jesus live in our hearts? I, I know that Jesus is God, but he's also a flesh and blood human being, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So how does that work? Well, do you remember when Jesus was on earth with his disciples, and he was about to leave them, and he was about to be crucified and killed, and resurrected, and then he'd ascend to heaven, and the disciples are really freaking out over this. They're really troubled by this, and I don't blame them, because up until that point, having Jesus with them was the best three years of their lives, and now he's talking about going away. But Jesus then tells them something shocking. He says, it's better that I leave you, because when I do, the Holy Spirit will come, and he will be in you. And of course, the Spirit is every bit of God as Jesus is. Remember, Christianity 101 here, there's only one God, but He exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is equal to Jesus in deity and power and authority. And when Jesus departs to heaven, he, descend, he sends His disciples, the Holy Spirit, to be another helper to them, just like Jesus was. But unlike Jesus, who was flesh and blood and, and, and was only in one place in Israel at any given time during those three years, the Holy Spirit is Spirit, and He will be everywhere. Even more, Jesus says, the Spirit will be in them. And so no matter where they go, no matter where they are, even if they separate and scatter, which, which they will, the Spirit will always be with them and in them, and therefore Jesus will be with them and in them through the Spirit. Elsewhere, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. And the Spirit is in all believers, everywhere. Everywhere. Paul writes in Romans that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ isn't a Christian, which means that everyone who is a Christian has the Spirit of Christ. But then that raises question number two. If Jesus, through the Spirit, is in everyone who is a Christian, then why does Paul pray that Christ would dwell in the hearts of his readers through faith when they already have Jesus living in them? These people, are, these are Christian people. These are people that he said in verse or chapter 1, have been adopted, and they've been redeemed, and all of that. So what's going on? Well, I think there's a helpful clue in the Greek text, and and just a refresher if you're new to the Bible, Paul wrote this in first century Greek. And Paul had a couple of choices regarding which Greek word he could have used in regards to Christ dwelling in their hearts. Uh, As opposed to using a word that could simply mean just inhabit, uh, Paul uses a stronger version of that word that gives the idea Of settling down. Uh, He's he's praying that Christ would not only live in their hearts, but that he would make himself comfortable there and be at home in their hearts. It's the essence of what Paul's getting at. Don Carson, in his book Praying with Paul, which is out there on the resource shelf, by the way, one of our recommended resources, uh, Carson beautifully illustrates what Paul is getting at when he says, Picture a couple carefully marshalling enough resources to put together a down payment. They buy their house, recognizing full well that it needs a fair bit of work. They can't stand the black and silver wallpaper in the master bedroom. There are mounds of trash in the basement. The kitchen was designed for the convenience of the plumber, not the cook. The roof leaks in a couple of places. The insulation barely meets minimum standards. The electrical box is too small. The lighting in the bathrooms poor. The heat exchanger in the furnace is corroded. But still it's this young couple's first home. And they're grateful. The months slip past, then the years. And over the years, the black and silver wallpaper has been replaced with tasteful pastel patterns. The couples remodeled their kitchen, doing much of the work themselves. The roof no longer leaks. And the furnace has been replaced with a more powerful unit that includes a central air conditioner. Better yet, as the family grows, this couple completes a couple of extra rooms in the basement, adds a small wing to serve as a study and a sewing room. The grounds are neatly trimmed and boast a dazzling rock garden. And 25 years after the purchase, the husband one day remarks to his wife, you know, I really like it here. This place suits us. Everywhere we look, we see the results of our own labor. This house has been shaped to our needs and tastes, and I feel really comfortable here. When Christ, by His Spirit, takes up residence within us, He finds the moral equivalent of mounds of trash, black and silver wallpaper, and a leaking roof. He sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for Him, a home in which He is comfortable. Uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of cleaning to do, quite a few repairs, and some much-needed expansion. But His aim is clear. He wants to take up residence in our hearts as we exercise faith in Him. Make no mistake, when Christ comes into our life for the first time, he finds us in very bad repair. And it takes a great deal of power to change us. It really does. And that's why Paul prays for power. Jesus is transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. That's a great illustration and it really hits the nail on the head. You see, Jesus never saves perfect people. He always saves fixer-uppers, homes that are in bad repair, homes that are condemned, homes that are just incredibly gross and disgusting. Jesus purchases homes like that. As a matter of fact, that's the only kind of home that he purchases, Uh, homes that we would write off and pass over. But we were all like that. And Jesus purchases us and makes us his own. And and I know when God first purchased this home, Deemer Webb, it was in shambles. It seemed beyond hope, beyond repair. And in 1991, Jesus began a long-term renovation process in my heart, and it is still ongoing. By the grace of God, I am most definitely not what I once was, but by his grace, I will be so much more than I am now and the same is true with you. If you're a Christian, Jesus lives inside you through His Spirit. You can't be a a Christian without having Him live inside of you. But the question for you now is, how much at home is He in your hearts? Is it a place where He can make His happy residence? How much work is there left to be done? Are there certain areas of the home in your heart where Jesus has done a lot of work and, and, and He can be there and relax and His fingerprints are everywhere indicating His good work? And are there at the same time other areas of the home, other rooms in the house that are still a mess? And, and are, are there even areas where you're not comfortable with the idea of Him going in there and renovating and smashing down walls and ripping up floors and making everything different? Are there certain sins that you're hanging on to? And are they behind locked doors and you've shoved them into a closet and you do not want Jesus coming in there? Oh, you can go into the living room and, and you can go in the kitchen, but you're not going to that room. Is there any filth in the attic? Is there any lust in the bedroom? Is there any anger or bitterness or pride in the garage? How about Harbin's church as a whole? Remember, Paul's writing this not to just individuals. He's writing it to a collection of people, a church. How are we doing as a whole? You know, we can praise God for the good work that Jesus has done in our midst over the years, but, y'all, there is still more work to be done in this church. And so as we pray for ourselves and pray for one another, let this kind of prayer, these prayers of Paul, let those kind of prayers dominate our requests, that God would strengthen our inner being to the point where if someone could peer into our hearts and look into our church, they would say, you know, this place, these people look like Jesus. The desires here, I, uh, the desires that I see here are Jesus's desires. The loves that I see here are Jesus's loves. The things that Jesus hates, this heart hates those things also, and this heart loves the Savior. It is a place, it is a people fitting for Him. Is that something that someone could say about you? Could your co-worker say it when you go to the office on Monday morning? Can your friends say it? Can your neighbors say it? Others in this church? The notion of our hearts being Jesus' home is quaint, but don't let the quaintness of it obscure the fact that ultimately this is about lordship. The house belongs to Jesus now, and He is Lord of the manor. And he aims to renovate it in a way that he sees fit. Changing and transforming, adding and taking away whatever he will. And it is the calling of the Christian to not be completely passive in this. Yes, we are to yield to his renovation work. But guess what? We are also to submissively and obediently and joyfully join him in it. As Jesus hands you a sledgehammer and says, let's tear down that wall. I think that's what Paul means when he prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Faith is something we exercise. So we participate in this process as we trust Him more and more and we follow His lead. I don't know what kind of renovation work needs to be done in your heart right now. And if you're not sure, why don't you ask another Christian who knows you well if you have the courage? If you have more courage, ask God. In our men's prayer meeting last week, one of the brothers had a very bold prayer request that Jesus would open his eyes to blind areas in his life, areas of sin and disobedience, those things that might need to be exposed so that he might deal with him. That is a bold prayer. And it reflects a heart that wants to join Jesus in that renovation work to better make his heart the Savior's home. And it's a kind of prayer I would commend to you, that the next time you go before God, more than praying for the outer man, more than praying for material needs, spend even more time praying that the Spirit would strengthen your inner man, because you can't live this Christian life in your own power, and you can be strong and healthy physically and be in shambles spiritually, and you can be weak and sick and battered and broken down and yet exuding power in the inner man. Pray for the Spirit's strength. Pray that you might better recognize and be prepared to have the necessary work done in your heart so that it might be more fitting for Jesus to live in. And pray it for the members of this church when you're praying through that church directory. Make it a regular part of your prayers. What would happen? What would happen if we prayed these kind of things for ourselves and for our church twice as much as we prayed for the outer man and material matters? What incredible moves of the Holy Spirit might we see at Harbin's starting today if we began to be committed to praying that way? We'll never know unless we start doing it. So let's start doing it. And let's see what God will do in our midst. If you've come here this morning as an unbeliever, maybe all this talk of of Christ making a home in our hearts has left you feeling like you're on the outside looking in. you wonder if you could ever be at home with Christ and him at home with you. And, And the good news is that Jesus has extended a wonderful invitation. You know what he said? He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. If your heart is turning towards Jesus and you desire to keep his word, the most important word for you to keep is for you to repent and believe the gospel. You see, You as a sinner, like all of us at one point, had locked the doors of our hearts to Jesus. The last thing we wanted was Him in there. We wanted to be Lord of the manor. We wanted to be in charge. We wanted our house to be our way. So we sought to shut Jesus out, rejecting Him. And in rejecting Him, He rejected us. And, And once we die, hell comes, which means being forever rejected, forever shut away from the enjoyment of God's blessing and presence. But that mutual rejection is not the end of the story for everyone. The Bible says that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God. You know, I know sometimes folks make fun of the phrase, ask a Jesus into your heart, and I understand why. But I don't think we should be snobbish about that phrase just because some have misused it. The notion of receiving Jesus into your heart is a good and right and biblical thing. If you came here this morning unbelieving, if you receive Jesus Christ for all that He is as God, Lord, Master, Savior, receiving Him as the one who died on the cross to provide the only possible payment for your sins, turning from your sins and seeking to follow after Him, if you do that, you will find that He has come into your heart too. You may feel like your life is a mess. You may feel like it's in shambles, a big-time fixer-upper beyond hope and repair. But remember, Jesus specializes in restoring condemned hearts and homes and making them more beautiful than you could possibly imagine as more and more your heart becomes His home. The image of Jesus being at home in our hearts connotes the idea of unity and fellowship that we as believers have with Christ. And Jesus has given us an outward symbol to remind us of that internal unity that we have with Him, and that's the Lord's Supper. Communion is the great sign of Jesus' rescue of condemned men and women, a rescue He brought and bought by being condemned in our place as a sacrificial substitute, His death tearing down the barrier of sin that separated us from union with God. The bread represents His body that hung on the cross. The drink represents the blood that He shed for us. Some traditions teach that through the partaking of communion, sinners receive God's saving grace. That's not true. Communion is actually for sinners who have already received His saving grace and are celebrating it. Uh, consuming the bread and the drink does not save you. Instead, consuming the elements is a sign that you've already been saved on the basis of your trust in Jesus' sacrifice. It is faith that unites you to Jesus, not the consumption of bread and juice. But the consumption of the food does signify that union. As, as, as As food and drink goes into us and sustains our bodies, so the consumption of Jesus, which is the receiving of Him by faith, receiving all that He is by faith. The consumption of Him gives life and sustenance and satisfaction to your very soul. It's exactly what Jesus meant when He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. So if you're here this morning as a believer in Jesus, trusting in His sacrifice to save you, and demonstrating your unity with him by actively walking with him, then this communion meal is for you. If you are not a believer, if you're remaining an unbeliever, not turning to Jesus in repentance and faith, this meal is not for you. You're welcome here anytime, and you're welcome to participate in many things that we have going on here, but this meal is for believers only as a way to uh, celebrate the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and to remember what has saved us in the first place.